In today's episode, the final entry of a two-part series, we continue our biography on New England mob boss Raymond Patriarca, one of the most feared and respected bosses in the history of the American Cosa Nostra. The legends of the American Mafia are woven into the fabric of American society and pop culture. We've all seen the movies or heard the stories of the men of this secret society. They're stories of family, power, wealth, respect, greed, betrayal, violence, murder, and mayhem. While the golden age of the mob may be over, the stories have become lore, and the names remain as infamous as ever. You're listening to the Members Only Podcast, hosted by history buff and mob aficionado Jacob Stoops. He tells the true crime biographies of real-life mobsters and dives deep into the plots, subplots, and real facts behind Cosa Nostra, as well as popular mob films and television shows. Viewer discretion is advised. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Members Only Podcast. I am your host, Jacob Stoops, and I'm a longtime history buff and mob aficionado. Today's episode is a continuation of our deep dive into Raymond L.S. Patriarca. In part one, we covered Ray's early life from his birth in Worcester to his move to Providence around the age of four. We delved into how he grew up, what events led him to the criminal lifestyle, how he became involved in the mafia, and how he turned into one of its most promising rising stars. And not only that, we also provide an overarching history on how the mafia formed in both Providence, Rhode Island, as well as Boston, Massachusetts, and how these organizations positioned themselves in the 1920s, 1930s, and 1940s to consolidate and dominate crime across New England. So if you haven't watched that episode first, I'd urge you to jump on over there uh, and then come back and watch this video. And by the way, thank you to those New Englanders who corrected my pronunciation as I said it incorrectly. Uh, I said Worcester instead of Worcester or Worcester. Uh, <laughs> I don't take offense uh, and I'm trying at every opportunity to correct my, uh, my mistakes. So thank you for pointing that out. Today, uh, we're going to cover Ray's 30 years as namesake and boss of the Patriarcha crime family. And I'm just going to tell you, even though he managed to steer that ship as well as pretty much anyone has or ever will, there were a lot, and I mean a lot, of murderous twists and turns along the way that we'll explore with you. Now, before we get into the episode, I'd just like to remind you to please smash that subscribe button and turn on the bell to get notifications when I release a new episode. To all of my new followers, welcome, uh, and I look forward to interacting with you. To my existing followers, you continue to impress me with your astute comments and opinions, and I'd really encourage you to keep it up. I've enjoyed responding and interacting with you, uh, and, it, and it's been really awesome thus far. Now, without further ado, let's get into part two of the Raymond Patriarcha biography. Okay, so we left off in part one in the early 1950s with Patriarcha's star maybe at its zenith and with him fully positioned as the heir apparent of the New England crime family. Outside of New England, there were some pretty significant national events happening that would serve to facilitate an amicable change in leadership during the early 1950s. In 1951, Senator Estes Kefauver created a special committee on organized crime and interstate commerce and held public hearings across 14 cities. The committee's purpose was to expose organized criminal elements to the public at large, and though not much would actually be done about it, over 30 million people tuned in to watch the proceedings, garnering a massive amount of unwanted exposure for the Mafia. During these hearings, the leadership in Boston and Providence feared that the publicity might expose them and their operations, and as a result, they ordered all bookmaking operations to shut down or to operate without a central layoff bank and without police protection. 
As a result, the local bookmakers lost Joseph Lombardo's protection service, though they gained more freedom to operate. Now, generally speaking, leaders in the New England family were very reluctant to be exposed and pretty significantly pulled back or considered retirement around this time period to avoid exposure and, you know, potentially long jail sentences. Luckily for the Boston Cosa Nostra contingent, the Kefauver hearings never uh, materialized in Boston, but this change in policy opened the door for an enterprising Italian hood named Gennaro, Jerry, and Giulio and his brothers to move in on the gambling operations in the city, something that would become a little bit more relevant later on. Anyways, the Angelos offered small business people such as barbers and store owners the opportunity to get a wholesale discount on bets on individual numbers, uh, and the Angelos were able to build a network converting these businesses into points of sale and bookies. This success ultimately attracted the interest of the Patriarca family, and by the late 1950s, Angelo was being shaken down regularly by local mobsters in Boston because he was not a made man, a made member of the family. Rather than resist, Angelo solved this problem by taking 50000 to Patriarca in Providence and promising him an additional 100000 a year after that. These payments led to Angelo becoming a made member uh, of the family without having to officially make his bones as other members were required, which fostered, uh, I would say, some, some seething resentment from his counterparts over the years. It was said that the Patriarcha and Angelo relationship was strictly financial and that Angelo was never well-liked or respected, but as long as he kept the money flowing into Providence, he had the backing and protection of Patriarcha. And eventually, Patriarcha would elevate Angelo to important positions within the family, so there must have been some level of trust involved. Uh, and I know this is skipping way ahead, but now here's what I really don't understand about Patriarcha, and maybe some of you uh, who know more about the New England underworld, or maybe met Ray, know more about Ray, or know more about the family, can enlighten me. Uh, so by allowing Angelo to pay his way into the family... Isn't that a clear violation of said Cosa Nostra rules? Wasn't Albert Anastasia seriously frowned upon for selling buttons? And his underboss, Frank Scalise, was actually murdered. And then I think my other question, uh, again, and these are kind of rhetorical questions, but feel free to chime in, is why would Patriarcha want some uh, person in his family whom enemies perceived as weak enough that they could push around and threaten? Why would he want somebody like that in his organization? So when it comes to the Angelos, that is just not something that I've ever really understood. So maybe I'm just missing something, but it sounds like a little bit of, of hypocrisy. And I wonder if other bosses and other families knew this. And if so, I wonder why they didn't question Patriarcha and why they uh, allowed that to happen with, with no pushback. Anyhow, Back to the ascension of Patriarcha. In 1952, the family's boss, Philip Bukala, is said to have held a party in which the purpose was both to celebrate his retirement and announce the ascension of Raymond L.S. Patriarcha to be the official boss of the family. Government reports indicate that the party was held in Johnston, Rhode Island, and was attended by more than 80 mafiosi. Bukala himself would retire or depending on which report you believe, to Sicily in 1954, where he ran a chicken farm, and he didn't actually pass away until 1987 at the ripe old age of 101. Now that is what you would call a resounding success in mob life. Didn't get pinched, got out, uh, you know, got out on his own terms at his own time and lived a long life of, I'm going to assume, luxury. Uh, that same year, 1954, the Massachusetts legislature established a crime commission and provided funds which would maintain the committee for a limited number of months. The committee made a number of pointed inquiries into the extent of gambling operations in Massachusetts. The funds available for the commission's work became depleted and a motion was pending to appropriate additional funds in order that the commission can carry on. The gambling element was bitterly opposed to the resumption of any committee inquiries and organized to defeat the continuance of the committee. 
in a show of influence, power, and ability to dominate politics in the New England area, Patriarcha, Henry Tamaleo, and additional members of the Rhode Island and Massachusetts gambling fraternity had a meeting in a Boston hotel in 1955 to formulate plans for the defeat of the Crime Commission appropriation. In the end, they would be successful at bringing about the death of this committee, which could have seriously hampered all of their business interests. So that's one of Patriarcha's sort of first orders of, of business after he becomes boss. In 1956, once the dust had really settled from Patriarcha taking over leadership of the family, he began to make his mark by enacting some changes within the crime family, the biggest being the move of the primary base of operations from Boston to Providence, Rhode Island. Patriarcha would name Enrico Tamaleo, or Henry Tamaleo, as his underboss. Now, the interesting thing about Tamaleo is that he is said to have had dual membership in both the Patriarcha family as well as New York's Bonanno family. Now, to my knowledge, and maybe I'm wrong, Tamaleo was one of the few members in the American Cosa Nostra to have dual membership in multiple families. Now, it's not uncommon for Sicilian mafiosi to be made in America as well as Sicily, but it's, to my knowledge again, not really commonplace for an American Cosa Nostra member to be made in two families. So I just thought I would, I would I put that out there. Interesting, interesting fact about the Patriarcha family underboss. Ray Patriarcha ran his criminal empire from an unassuming wood frame two-story building located at 168 Atwells Avenue in the Federal Hill neighborhood of Providence. This building included his office and housed the National Cigarette Service Company and Coinomatic Distributors, a vending machine and pinball machine business. And of course, he would very famously often be seen sitting outside or operating within Coinomatic. So that was very well known to people in the Federal Hill area that that's where Patriarcha spent most of his time. Atwell Avenue in that time has been described as a noisy open-air market that was also an armed camp with spotters located everywhere. This helped to ensure tight security and protection within the neighborhood, and it's said that no stranger could come into Federal Hill without Raid Patriarcha knowing about it very quickly. Similar to other families like Chicago's Outfit, the Patriarcha organization was known by its family members as The Office. However, Patriarcha didn't completely do away with the old guard. He was said to have created a mob advisory council made up of the old dons respected as the men who made the mob decades previously. Informer Vincent Fat Vinnie Teresa would say of them, They got the town, Boston, in the bag, and it's been in the bag ever since. They were the ones who made the connections with police department. They'd had the connections in the district attorney's office for 30 or 40 years. They made the mob. In their twilight years, these men were accorded the title of Don, and although they no longer did anything except sit around in lounge chairs, Patriarcha saw that they got their cut from some kind of racket. And when they were needed in a crisis, they were called to a meeting just to get their thinking since they knew the nuances of mob mentality around the country. So it's clear that Patriarcha was shrewd, cunning, deadly, but also very wise to take the advice of these elders even though he held the top spot. From his seat on Federal Hill, it is said that every card game, prostitution ring, and illegal business in Providence had to pay a direct kickback to Patriarcha or else. It is also said that Providence, and specifically Federal Hill, was much safer during Patriarcha's reign than at other points in history, though this has been hotly debated by local pundits. In an article published by Go Local Prov, they shared the sentiments of political leaders, law enforcement officials, historians, and Federal Hill community leaders who helped put the recent incidents, now this is recent as of many, many years ago, of violence on Atwells Avenue in a historical context. Uh, here are some excerpts from these published interviews. And again, this is recent interviews as of the 1980s, right? Immediately after Ray Patriarcha passes away. There is a perception that things were less violent on Federal Hill during the Raymond Patriarcha era, but I disagree since it is only the nature of the violence that has changed, explained former Rhode Island Attorney General Arlene Violet, 
who oversaw a major crackdown on mob activity during her tenure as Rhode Island Attorney General from 1984 to 1986. It is no secret that organized crime was prevalent in Rhode Island, and when Ray Patriarca was the boss, he ran all of New England from his chair outside of the office on Atwell's Avenue, recalled former state police superintendent Colonel Brendan Doherty, who served 24 years in the Rhode Island State Police Intelligence Unit focusing on organized crime in the 1980s and 1990s. Back then, in the 60s and 70s, there was, shall we say, an arrangement between the police and organized crime. It was an unspoken arrangement. The mafia was expected to keep a lid on it, violence pouring into the streets. To keep violence out of their places of business, restaurants on Federal Hill would pay tribute to Patriarca for protection, said Providence City archivist Paul Campbell, who has been responsible for covering the city's history. Going back to the era of organized crime, there were high-profile mob hits. You don't have that today, explained Doherty. Campbell spoke of one specific episode that stood out. One of the early mob hits on Federal Hill was at a restaurant at 93 Atwells Avenue. Blind Pig Rossi and Seth, love that name by the way, uh, and several other witnesses of the shooting were stricken with total memory loss, Campbell noted. Mob hits and such specific acts of violence were routine during the time when Raymond Patriarca was boss, according to Violet. Owners who didn't pay off the tab for protection were routinely beaten by mob enforcers in their place of work. A murder hit of Raymond Slick Vecchio occurred in a Federal Hill restaurant in 1982. Kevin Hanrahan, an alleged mob enforcer, was killed on Atwell's Avenue in 1992. Another mob associate, Willie Marfeo, was shot to death on Federal Hill while his brother ate lead at a Providence grocery store. This enforcement business was seen as fairly routine, so residents were used to it and didn't fear being slain if they didn't run afoul of the mob, Violet added. And maybe the difference is that it's the perception of the public that has changed uh, rather than the actual crime rate. But it's clear that after Patriarcha passed, the perception is that violence got worse in Federal Hill. To quote the Go Local Prov article one last time, Patriarcha would never allow drunken brawls, for example, to spill out onto the streets since it was bad for business for many owners who paid protection money to avert such a calamity. Today, there is a fear that violence could spill out onto innocent people by lone perpetrators. At present, the violence is much more randomized, said Violet. Rhode Island State Representative John J. Lombardi told Go Local Prov that he cannot recall a time when Federal Hill was so violent. Lombardi grew up on De Pasquale Avenue and has represented the Hill for 26 years in the Providence City Council and General Assembly. I have been on this earth 62 years and simply cannot recall a time when Federal Hill was so violent. Did people ever get murdered or shot? Of course, let's not be naive. But people bludgeoned to death in the middle of the day? 20-person mobs fighting with police outside nightclubs? I don't recall women ever catching beatings in clubs. It is just egregious. I was young once. Growing up on Federal Hill, did we stay out until all hours of night? Sure. But we always had respect for the police, added Lombardi. Patriarcha exhibited a high degree of polish with the local police as well as the public. Much like Vito Corleone in the den of his home, Patriarcha regularly held court and sorted out both domestic and crime family disputes directly from his Atwell Avenue office. In The Underboss, The Rise and Fall of a Mafia Family, authors Dick Lair and Gerard O'Neill noted that Patriarcha was involved in a complex maze of interests. He completely controlled some markets, especially those involving gambling, loan sharking, and pornography, and dabbled in others such as truck hijacking and drug traffic, in which freelancers negotiated a fee to do business. On his watch, the family expanded into new rackets and had hidden interests in two Las Vegas casinos, one of which was the Dunes Hotel, and his family even delved into narcotics, though future informer Vincent Fat Vinnie Teresa would insist that Patriarcha explicitly forbade drug dealing in his family. By then, most families were into drugs, but had a look-the-other-way policy in which they didn't directly consent for their soldiers to deal, but had no issue taking the proceeds. And though I could be wrong, my impression is that Patriarcha was probably similar in this respect. According to Teresa, Patriarcha believed that he paid his men well enough that there was no reason for them to be drug dealing. But money is money, and I'm sure... 
there were some that found ways around that edict, and I'm sure, even more sure, the Patriarcha probably took that money. Patriarcha's reign as leader of the New England Syndicate was rumored to be strict, ruthless, and brutal. In one incident that would show Patriarcha's ruthlessness, he allegedly ordered an elderly mobster to murder his own son after Patriarcha lost a substantial amount of money on a bad deal. When the father fell to his knees crying that he couldn't kill his own son and pleading for his boy's life, Patriarcha shelved the man from his family. Supposedly, the only reason that Patriarcha didn't have the older man killed was that Patriarcha's underboss, Henry Tamaleo, was able to cool him down and persuaded Patriarcha to give the man a pass. In another incident, he'd supposedly put up $22,000 for his men to handle a load of stolen cigarettes. Unfortunately for all, the FBI seized the hijacked shipment of cigarettes that he'd financed. In a real case of fuck you, pay me, Patriarcha demanded that the men pay him back the 22000 that they'd lost. He was there for the profits, but he certainly was not there for the losses. And I guess that's his right as the boss. Uh, though he was typically described as fair, he was known to have an infamous temper and a bit of a nasty streak. It's alleged that he even put a death contract out on his own brother for failing to notice an electronic surveillance device placed in his office by federal agents. He would run the family effectively for over 30 years, and though he was constantly pursued, he was very skilled at warding off police and was relatively unhindered by law enforcement despite doing some prison time here or there. Uh, and again, it's not to say that he didn't have arrests or prison time, but for whatever reason, he was always able to wiggle out of major charges with minor sentences. It is said that he forbade other mafia organizations from operating in New England unless they received his express permission, which was pretty similar to the approach uh, taken by powerful New Orleans boss Carlos Marcello. As the New York families wanted to operate in the New England area, Patriarcha agreed to a territorial dividing line that was around the Connecticut River. In the 1950s and 1960s, Patriarcha forged strong relationships with several families within New York Cosa Nostra and had a seat on the famed commission. While he had relationships with all five families, his most significant was with the Genovese crime family. These alliances would allow Patriarcha and the New York families to essentially have a stranglehold over the entire northeastern seaboard, including Boston, Providence, and Maine for the Patriarcha family, and Hartford, Connecticut, Springfield, Massachusetts, and Albany, New York for the Genovese family. In 1956, as he was in the midst of remodeling the family, Patriarcha was called to Capitol Hill to testify as part of the 1956 Senate investigation into corruption within the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. He explained to Chief Counsel Robert F. Kennedy how he began his career in the jukebox business, stating that most of the money came from an inheritance from his mother, who had kept 80000 to 90000 in cash in a box in the basement of her family home. So, isn't that convenient? Good starting money. Uh, in reality, Patriarcha had been a leader in the vending machine business for some time. At one point, he sent his goons to pressure business owners to remove competitors' coin-operated jukeboxes and replace them with his own. According to the FBI, he had no trouble getting his jukeboxes because people are afraid to refuse and did not want to risk the wrath of Patriarcha's leg breakers being sent to harass themselves or their businesses. Also around that time, according to the Providence Bulletin, now the Providence Journal, Patriarcha's entry into cigarette vending with his firm the National Cigarette Service in 1956 displaced machines owned by other companies in 55 locations in Rhode Island, even though those companies had placement contracts. The FBI reported that he was associating with Louis the Fox Taglianetti, a made man who would eventually be murdered in 1970. A judge issued a restraining order and injunction against Patriarcha at the request of a competitor to prevent him from bumping machines from public spaces, but by all accounts, this had little effect. In addition to this, the Patriarcha family continued to enjoy proceeds from gambling in Rhode Island, Boston, and elsewhere in Massachusetts. Patriarcha also had a piece of a company run by his brother-in-law that manufactured sweaters and was said to have employed mostly salesmen who were connected with the hoodlum element who went around town selling the clothing for cheap as stolen hot merchandise. 
So as you get into the 1960s, Patriarcha is highly respected and still very much in control of his family. Things in the early 1960s began to get a little bumpy as U.S. Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy galvanized the federal government to turn up the heat on organized crime with specific focus on developing informants. From 1962 through 1965, the FBI actually succeeded in placing illegal bugs in Patriarcha's office, which gave them keen and only previously suspected insights into the family's day-to-day -day activities, murderous discussions, as well as their vast ability to corrupt the local government and law enforcement. One of the conversations recorded and transcribed by the agents concerned an assessment of $5 a week to be levied toward the building of a $25,000 welfare fund to assist ill or troubled members. In another overheard dialogue, a man identified as underboss Henry Tamaleo of Providence was reported to have named an East Boston man as the slayer of a certain Joseph Francione in Revere, Massachusetts. Yet another of what were called airtells told how Samuel Linden, who himself was later murdered, was asked by an unidentified man if he would like to have the killing of a marked victim held up for a while because the man was known to owe Linden $8,000. Linden was reported to have told the caller that he did not care about the money and that he did not want to hear about the killing. The bugs would also reveal an extensive volume of political payoffs to the governor's office, legislators and judges in both Rhode Island and Massachusetts, although authorities later claimed, maybe to save face, that Patriarcha's political contacts did not yield much. Fast forwarding to 1967, the bugs which were still in place caught Patriarcha using the word family in tapped telephone conversations to designate Cosa Nostra members. However, a grand jury in Boston would call into question the use of these wiretaps in order to determine if they impacted convictions of Patriarcha's soldiers. In 1963, the government held the McClellan hearings, which were more commonly known as the Valachi hearings, in which the testimony of famous mob rat and former Genovese family soldier Joseph Valachi was televised nationally. In these hearings, Valachi became the first member of Cosa Nostra to publicly acknowledge the existence of the organization, and he provided information about many of the families as well as the key figures, including one Raymond Patriarcha. Valachi would state that Patriarcha was one of the key figures of a 12-man syndicate that controlled organized crime in America. The syndicate named by Valachi also included figures such as Carlo Gambino, Joe Bonanno, as well as Sam Giancana. Now, referring to the Mafia's control on illegal activity in the entire country as just a 12-man syndicate was a significant misrepresentation uh, and conflation uh, in terms of the explanation by Valachi at the time, although he may have been referring to the group of key men on the commission and not the actual number of families and members, which was far more numerous than anyone could imagine at that point, save for maybe, of course, Harry Anslinger uh, of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, or FBN, who had extensive, extensive knowledge of, of the workings of the mafia, despite the fact that the FBI and the government in general denied the existence until about this time. The mafia would reportedly put out a $100,000 revenge contract on Valachi's head, but were never actually able to get to him. Now, in the early 1960s, and even while the Valachi hearings were occurring, there was also the Gallo-Profaci civil war going on in New York. Due to the level of respect he had, and likely due to needing someone to bring some levity and a level-headed objective viewpoint, Patriarcha was brought in to mediate the dispute in 1964. And while the peace would be broken years later, Patriarcha was able to successfully arbitrate the dispute that would end hostilities for the time being. Also around 1964, you had the Bonanno Civil War going on, so it was a pretty crazy time uh, in New York for the Mafia. Uh, it's often called the Golden Age of the Mafia, the 1950s and the 1960s, but there was a lot of upheaval with the families. Uh, and these two civil wars were, were pretty representative of that. 
Uh, in bugged conversations released later, Patriarca was caught discussing Bonanno's fate with another man, Danny Raimondi, who may have been a Bonanno soldier. According to the book Theft of the Nation, The Structure and Operations of Organized Crime in America, an individual believed to Danny Raimondi's father contacted Patriarca. Raimondi questioned Patriarca about the fate of Bonanno. Raymond explained that he was called to New York three weeks ago during which the fate of Bonanno was discussed. They decided that Bonanno was no longer a boss or commission member. They also put out the word that nobody is to have any business dealings or associate with members of the Bonanno group. A week later, Patriarca received another call from New York to attend another meeting. However, prior to the time he left Providence, this meeting was canceled for some unknown reason. It was Patriarca's opinion that Bonanno was not killed by any member of the opposing faction. He pointed out that if the opposing faction wanted him killed, they would have done so at the time they grabbed him on Park Avenue, as is the case in most killings of this type, particularly when there are witnesses such as the lawyer around. He pointed out that they were taking a chance in kidnapping Bonanno and killing him later and could not see why it would serve any purpose to kidnap him first. Because of this, he believes that Bonanno is still alive and that he, Bonanno, engineered the alleged kidnapping. He pointed out that he is not sure of this, but it is only his opinion. Patriarca further pointed out that when Bonanno did not appear before the commission when requested on eight or nine different occasions, he was given one additional chance. Instead of Bonanno himself appearing, his son appeared, but they told him that they did not want to talk to the son, but the father. Raymond explained that about one half of Bonanno's group had turned themselves into the commission. He pointed out that even Bonanno's relation by marriage who was on the commission voted to throw Bonanno out of Cosa Nostra. The commission member was described as being from Detroit. Raymond pointed out that he wanted no fighting from this group and stated that Bonanno was the cause of his own downfall because he was so greedy. And in hindsight, Patriarca's statements regarding Bonanno would prove to be pretty spot on. Also in the early 1960s, you see Patriarca flex some political muscle as he would swing elections for governor and attorney general of the state of Massachusetts. According to reports through intermediaries, Patriarca had offered 100000 to former Lieutenant Governor Francis X. Bellotti for his campaigns for governor in 1964 and attorney general in 1966. However, when Bellotti turned down these efforts, the mob spread the word that he had taken mob money, and these rumors were a major factor in his defeat in both campaigns. So if he couldn't put someone in that he could control, he had enough power to tank their campaign. From a personal standpoint, it was in 1965 that Ray's first wife, Helen, passed away with whom he had Raymond Jr. in 1945. Later on, he would remarry a former nightclub hostess, Rita O'Toole, and the couple would remain together until Patriarca's death. In 1966, things for Patriarca continued to get more dicey as law enforcement finally succeeded in turning a mobster with ties to the Patriarca family for the first time. That man was Joseph the Animal Barboza, and as you will see, he was a piece of work and, and just kind of a scumbag. Joe the Animal Barboza was a Patriarca family hitman who claimed to have committed 26 murders, and according to many reports and later evidence, as I said just now, he was a real piece of work. Barboza first became known to the Patriarca family while doing time in MCI Walpole in Massachusetts. After his parole in 1958, he began running in organized crime circles within East Boston doing small-time burglaries to make ends meet. His crew of burglars and thieves eventually came under the protection of the Patriarca crime family and was supervised by none other than Stephen the Rifleman Flemmy of Whitey Bulger fame. In the 1960s, Barboza began taking on contract killings and had earned a reputation as one of Boston's most prolific contract killers and sidewalk soldiers. Due to his Portuguese heritage and dark complexion, Barboza could never officially be made, and his Italian associates often referred to him using derogatory and racist comments, which I won't repeat here, but which I'm sure probably rubbed him the wrong way. 
1964, Barboza officially changed his surname to Baron, which, as you'll see, shows up in FBI reports. By 1966, Barboza was in a very tenuous position within the Boston underworld. By this point, he'd aligned himself to the Winter Hill Gang due to the leader of that gang aligning with the Flemmy brothers, who he trusted. However, Barboza was also being pushed pretty hard by an FBI agent named Paul Rico, whom he had also built a relationship with, to become an informant. Barboza was not a man to care about or abide by the rules of Cosa Nostra, and due to this fact, he openly made threats against family-protected establishments and important figures, including made men such as Gennaro Angiulo, uh, who, as we learned earlier, uh, before he was made, was getting pushed around by local gangsters and ran to Patriarca for protection. It's at this point where the attempts on Barboza's life truly begin, uh, and it was reported that the first attempt was someone actually trying to take a shot out at him while he was standing outside of his home. In October of 1966, Barboza and two associates were arrested on weapons charges in Boston. His accomplices were released on bail, but Barboza had his bail set at $100,000, which he just simply could not afford. On top of that, nobody from the Patriarcha crime family came down to post his bail, and he had heard rumors that it was the Mafia family who had actually tipped off the cops. So at this point, it was clear that the Patriarcha family had kind of, was kind of done with him, uh, and they were sending a pretty strong, pretty strong message that they weren't going to help him. To compound the citation, his accomplices were murdered just five weeks later by members of the Patriarcha family. After a family associate tipped the cops on who was responsible for the murder, he too was murdered. It's at this point that the FBI really begins putting on the full court press to turn Barboza, who late in December of 1966 was convicted of that weapons charge and sentenced to serve five years at MCI Walpole. It is alleged that the government told Barboza that his wife and children would not be protected unless he agreed to testify. It is also alleged that they made other promises, including plastic surgery, as well as setting him up with his own restaurant, though they ultimately failed to make good on those promises. In June of 1967, when Barboza heard from his friend Steve Flemmy that the Patriarcha family had planned to murder him, he finally turned and began supplying testimony against various family members, including Ray Patriarcha. Barboza had the distinction of becoming one of the first FBI informants to ever be entered into the witness protection program. Barboza would go on to testify in open court against Ray Patriarcha and other members of the organization. As a result, on June 20, 1967, both Patriarcha and longtime underboss Henry Tamaleo were indicted for conspiracy to murder in the 1966 killing of Providence bookmaker Willie Marfeo. Willie Marfeo had been murdered by four shotgun blasts. According to reports, the gunman, a short, stocky man wearing a straw hat, ordered Marfeo into a telephone booth, shot him four times, and walked out. Patriarcha would ultimately be convicted in 1968, sentenced to just five years and a $10,000 fine for conspiracy to murder, nonetheless. That seems pretty light. Uh, and even had the execution of his sentence stayed pending appeal, which means he was still able to, to, to walk free and, and be out and about in the, in the public. After the Supreme Court shot down his bid for a new trial, Patriarcha began serving his time at the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary in March of 1969, at which point he designated Gennaro Jerry Angiulo of the Boston faction to serve as acting boss and would also appoint him as official underboss. In reality, he would continue to run his family from prison. In a separate case, Barboza would also tie the underboss, Henry Tamaleo, as well as five Confederates to the 1965 murder of small-time hood Edward Teddy Deegan in exchange for a lighter sentence for himself. This trial would end up having significant long-term ramifications for each of the defendants, though it wouldn't touch Patriarcha himself. During the trial, the Patriarcha family would offer Barboza as much as $50,000 to stop talking or recant his testimony to which Barboza declined. An FBI document at the time suggests that Barboza himself was actually seeking as much as $250,000 from the defense on the promise of helping out, while another document says the number requested by Barboza was as much as $500,000.
So this just indicates the amount of shady dealings going on in this case with Barboza, his handlers in the FBI and the Patriarcha family. Uh, and again, I said Barboza was a character uh, and kind of a piece of work. So Barboza was willing to take money to essentially lie about his, his testimony. From the evidence I was able to find, Barboza was clearly playing both sides against the middle. In one FBI memo dated August 28, 1970, it says, Joseph Barboza Barron broke down sobbing under cross-examination, but finished testimony after a short recess. Barron Barboza told them that the performance that he put on in court on August 27th at the habeas corpus proceeding was just an act, that he was really still on the side of the government, and that he wanted the organization to think that he was with them. He said that he was only indicating that he would recant because the organization was paying him money. While the trials were going on, the Patriarcha family tried to get at Barboza by planting a bomb in the car of his attorney, John Fitzgerald. The subsequent blast resulted in Fitzgerald losing his right leg below the knee. Due to this incident, the FBI had to keep Barboza on the move to prevent the mob from finding him, even going so far as to hide him within officers' quarters located at Fort Knox. Barboza's testimony, which was later described as not believable despite the fact that it helped convict several people, earned him his release from prison in 1969, at which time he was shepherded into the Witness Protection Program under an assumed name and relocated to California. Four of the men in the Deegan murder case would receive the death sentence, and two would receive life imprisonment, though all would eventually be commuted to just life in prison. As it turned out, based on information that came out years later, Barboza completely fabricated most of the information with the complicity of the FBI and simply used his status as an informant to settle old scores, so to speak. Now here's what is really messed up. According to FBI logs, Barboza and his friend Vincent Fleming came to Patriarcha and asked for his permission to kill Deegan as they were having a problem with him, and Patriarcha would ultimately furnish his okay. Three days later, Deegan would turn up dead in an alley, shot six times. Now this is a case of serious FBI corruption as they clearly knew what was going on. A government reform committee would later reveal the Bureau's knowledge that Vincent Flemmy and Barboza were directly involved in killing Teddy Deegan. In fact, an FBI memorandum just a week after the killing described the crime, even going so far as to include who fired the first shot. Uh, so they knew about it, and they allowed these people to be convicted and sent to death sentences and life in prison while Barboza pretty much walked free. So that's insane. But unfortunately for the defendants, most of these men served time for crimes they were completely innocent of. And while a few of the convicted men's sentences would later be commuted, some would die in prison, including underboss Henry Tamaleo, who served 17 plus years of his life sentence. In the early 2000s, well, well after the fact, federal wrongful conviction lawsuits would be filed by the men's families and 100 million in damages were paid to those families. Unfortunately for the government, Barboza proved to be just a complete disaster in witness protection and actually murdered a local hood named Clay Wilson while in witness protection. Uh, Barboza would again be arrested and would go back on trial in 1971. Despite the fact that the case and evidence against Joe the Animal was said to be overwhelming and due to some interference and corruption on the part of the FBI, Barboza would receive a plea bargain and a light five-year sentence rather than the death penalty that he likely should have received. He would go away to serve his time at Folsom Prison. So, murder in the Witness Protection Program, only a five-year sentence. That's just absurd. Martin Miller, the public defender of Barboza, and Edwin Cameron, the Sonoma County DA who assisted in making the state's case, later said the following, which in actuality shows the corruption on the government's part. Cameron, the FBI at the time was considered pretty sacrosanct, he said. They had damaged our case to the point that we didn't think the jury would give us a first-degree murder verdict because having the FBI there and the color of their authority painting him as honest and truthful. Miller recalled the FBI agents and Harrington explaining their motivation for coming to the aid of Barboza, whose previous testimony had helped convict several top-flight mobsters in New England, including Raymond Patriarcha, head of the New England crime empire. 
Miller. They were worried that if Barboza were given death for the Wilson murder, that he'd recant his previous testimony against Patriarcha and others, he said. So they would help him in any way they could. So Barboza drew a light sentence for his 26th or 27th murder nonetheless, and got out in 1975 under a new assumed identity. Unfortunately for Joe the Animal Barboza, his luck would run out. In 1976, members of the Patriarcha crime family finally found out where he was located, and he was shotgunned to death in San Francisco while walking from his apartment to his car. The hitman was alleged to have been J.R. Russo, who would eventually rise to the position of consigliere in the Patriarcha family. Now, can we just take a moment to appreciate Russo as he quite honestly looked like he was the basis for Jack Nicholson's Joker character in Batman? It's just uncanny. Um, Ilario Zanino, who himself would rise to the position of consigliere within the family, was overheard on a hidden bug saying that Russo was a genius with a carbine. Barboza's attorney at the time of his death would be quoted as saying, With all due respect to my former client, I don't think society has suffered a great loss, which would indicate just what a giant scumbag Barboza truly was. Anyhow, let's duck back out of the Barboza rabbit hole and get back to our main subject, Ray Patriarcha. As of 1970, Patriarcha wasn't quite out of the weeds just yet. At this point in time, Patriarcha was still serving time at the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary for the murder of Willie Marfeo, with Gennaro Angelo serving as acting boss of the family. Then, in March of 1970, Patriarcha and several of his associates were arrested and went on trial for murder and conspiracy to commit murder. This time, the murder contract was allegedly handed out to kill Willie Marfeo's brother, Rudolph Rudy Marfeo, along with his bodyguard, Anthony Mele. Both were shotgunned to death on April 20th, 1968 in Providence. The chief witness in the trial was thief and former hitman John Red Kelly, who afterwards went into the federal witness program as well. This is the same John Red Kelly who also testified against Gambino boss Carlo Gambino in 1970 regarding the latter's role in the $3 million heist at Chase Manhattan Bank. Kelly claimed to have been imported from Boston to supervise the job. So this guy was going after some really big fish. Kelly would finger his so-called good friend and former professional baseball player Maurice Lerner as the shooter and Patriarcha as the one who'd ultimately handed out the contract to kill Rudy Marfeo and Melee. According to his testimony, Patriarcha Lieutenant Luigi Menocchio had recruited Lerner for his controlled violence and Lerner had in turn brought in Kelly for his meticulous attention to escape plans. He would describe how they repeatedly scouted the daily movements of their intended victims, the wayward bookie Rudy Marfeo and his bodyguard Anthony Mele. How Minocchio later shook hands after a job well executed and conveyed the message that George, code for Patriarcha, was pleased. Eventually, FBI agents would arrest Lerner early one morning at his Brookline apartment finding a pump-action shotgun and a fully loaded pearl-handed 45 caliber pistol. The hearings and trial for the Marfeo melee killings included the usual mob theatrics. One defendant screamed at a prosecutor, I'll get you, you bastard. I'll see tears running down your face before this is over. Punched a wooden door and broke his hand. A witness for the prosecution disappeared for a day only to resurface with a tale of being whisked to a top secret location and asked to testify against everyone except Patriarcha and Lerner. As the witness left the stand, a defendant's relative threatened her life. After three days of deliberations in March 1970, a jury in Providence convicted Lerner, Patriarcha, and three others of conspiracy, while Lerner was also convicted of murder. The man with a career batting average of 308 was given two life sentences. He was just 34 years old. Patriarcha himself would get off much easier. On August 31st, 1970, Patriarcha and his associates were sentenced each to 10 years in prison, though he continued again to run his family while he was imprisoned. Lerner and the other defendants were subsequently exonerated when it was established that Kelly had perjured himself at the trial, as had FBI agent Paul Rico, who had corroborated Kelly's testimony. 
1972, Patriarca made news again when he was taken from the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary to testify before the House Select Committee on Crime about investments made by the singer Frank Sinatra in the now-defunct Berkshire Downs racetrack near Hancock, Massachusetts, which was allegedly financed by organized crime figures. The House Select Committee inquiry wanted to question both Patriarca and Sinatra about his activities as director in the early 1960s of the racetrack. It was revealed after Sinatra sold his interest in the track that Patriarca, as well as late former Lucchese boss Tommy Lucchese, held secret interests in the track. Frank Sinatra would furiously denounce the committee for allowing a convicted felon to engage in what he would deem a character assassination by saying that he was a frontman for the mob. Aside from the issue with the racetrack, the felon, Joseph Barbosa, again, would also suggest that Sinatra held interests in two Las Vegas hotels as a front for Patriarca. And though Sinatra was clearly posturing for the public, given his clear long-time connections to organized crime, I actually have little doubt that this particular story uh, was, was true. For his part, Patriarca testified that he'd never actually met Sinatra, stating, The only place I've seen him is on television. Despite publicly saying that he would eventually shun the inquiry, Sinatra eventually would go on to testify that while he'd invested $55,000 personally in the racetrack, he never actually knew who the other investors were. So both parties more or less played dumb and kept their mouths shut, whatever the arrangements may have been. So Patriarca was in prison from 1969 until he completed his federal sentence in April 1973. In 1973, he was then transferred to a Rhode Island prison where he remained until he was paroled on December 26, 1974, and finally released in 1975. Upon his release, he resumed control of the family. Gennaro Angiulo had, of course, been serving as acting boss in his stead, though Patriarca was really running things during his six years behind bars. Unfortunately for Patriarca, law enforcement really would continue to dog him on charges, pretty much for the remainder of his life. While Patriarca was in prison, the crime family, which bears his name, would have another informant in former made man Vincent Fat Finney, Teresa, who agreed to cooperate in 1971 and who would also become a part of the Witness Protection Program. Ultimately, Vinnie Teresa would be responsible for indictments against over 50 mobsters and would go on to write several books while in hiding, claiming that he was a top lieutenant to Ray Patriarca. I have my doubts. Uh, that said, Teresa also refused to testify specifically against Patriarca, who he claimed had always treated him fairly. However, in 1982, Teresa was charged with conspiracy to import cocaine while in witness protection, so he too, like Barboza, caused issues for the FBI while under their protection. His testimony and the FBI's diligence within verifying the information put forth has been called into question over the years. Teresa would eventually die in 1990 of kidney failure at the age of 61. All that said, one interesting suggestion from Teresa was that Patriarca may have been a part of the 1960 plot by the CIA to kill Fidel Castro that was ultimately never carried out. According to Teresa, Patriarca helped select Maurice Pro Werner, who, as we know, was the, the baseball player who was convicted to kill Castro, and as we know, uh, he would be the person tied up in the Marfeo killing. Now, of course, I know what you'll say. Teresa said he wouldn't testify against Patriarca, and here he is saying things about Patriarca. In this case, it's difficult to know whether that's true or not, given that the CIA Castro plot, which I 100% believe happened, is more commonly associated with mobsters like Sam Giancana, Santo Traficanti, Johnny Roselli, and not Patriarca. Is it plausible that Patriarca was involved? Perhaps. Was it likely? I personally doubt it, but it does make for a good story. The mid-1970s would become a very complex time period for Raymond Patriarca he was immediately facing significant pressure from federal authorities in the U.S. Attorney's Office. 
future governor of Rhode Island, Lincoln Almond, was spearheading the attack and was almost singularly focused on getting Patriarcha. Additionally, Patriarcha had a complex relationship with Boston's Winter Hill Gang and Whitey Bulger, and Patriarcha's good friend Supreme Court Justice Joseph Bevilacqua was under judicial review which would cut into some of his political power. And in 1975, a robbery that may have actually been larger than the Lufthansa heist was committed in Providence that would become known as the Bonded Vault heist. And in fact, there would later be a movie called Vault made after these events. On August 14, 1975, the firm Hudson Services, Inc., also known as Bonded Vault, was robbed by seven male suspects. An investigation disclosed that Hudson Services maintained a large number of safe deposit boxes, many of which were rented under assumed names by organized crime figures. Estimates of the amount of loot taken range from one to five million, which is huge. Uh, the amount stolen was later estimated to be in the range of 30 million. It was called by some the biggest single payday in the criminal history of the Northeast, and the fact remains that none of the loot was ever recovered by authorities. Now, there is some information out there stating that a source in the Patriarcha crime family gave police the names of most of the people involved soon after the heist. Other sources state that Patriarcha himself received a piece of the robbery. According to these sources, many of the 146 boxes contain the spoils collected by members and associates of the Patriarcha crime family. As a boss, Patriarcha was known for ruling his family with an iron fist and a reputation built on violence and fear. His bookies, associates, and wise guys used the boxes to hide everything from cash and guns to gold bars and jewelry. It turned out that the really valuable loot, including the gold bars, top quality jewelry, and rare gems, was given directly to none other than Patriarcha himself. Following the robbery, two shares of $64,000 each were given to Patriarcha according to interviews with retired FBI agents and others directly involved in the case. At the time of the crime, the revelation surprised investigators because the people who lost valuables in the robbery were the same bookmakers, associates, and wise guys who paid homage to Patriarcha. This led to the obvious question, why would he move to punish his own men by allowing this robbery to happen and then taking the proceeds? According to Wayne Wooster, not Worcester, by the way, who covered the story as a Providence Journal reporter, Patriarcha had just finished serving a prison sentence and came home to find that revenue that he should have made in his absence apparently was not quite what he thought it was. It either meant that someone was skimming from him while he was in jail or his people were lying down, and either way, he couldn't let that happen. He wouldn't let that happen. Detectives with the Rhode Island State Police and Providence Police tried to connect the dots on the robbery back to Patriarcha. According to law enforcement, Patriarcha not only gave the green light for the robbery, he even had a hand in the planning as well as the fencing of the proceeds. The robbery had striking similarities to Lufthansa, and although no made member of the Patriarcha family was ever charged in the bonded vault robbery, the fallout from it reverted throughout the organization. Wooster described it as the moment when the mob started to lose some of its grip in New England. If you look at what was going on with the heist, you can see this was the first major incident of the mob really starting to feed on itself. In 1978, Patriarcha would again be cited by the FBI as a major leader within Cosa Nostra outside of New York with his name appearing next to the likes of Tony Accardo and Joey Iupa of Chicago, James Licavoli of Cleveland, Anthony Zarilli of Detroit, Frank Balistrieri of Milwaukee, and even Tony Spilatro of Las Vegas by way of Chicago, among others. Also that year, the Justice Department was ordered to draft an index of conversations monitored by the FBI at the Office of Patriarcha dated back to 1962 through 1965 with the express purpose of leveraging these documents as a means of focusing legal arguments on each individual document. Again, not a good trend for the Patriarcha family, though in 1979, a federal appeals court ruled that these tapes could not actually be released since they were made illegally. By this point, if you haven't noticed a trend, it was getting harder and harder for Patriarcha to remain low-key and law enforcement was set 
on putting him behind bars sooner rather than later. And to that end, in December of 1980, Patriarca would be charged for the 1965 murder of Raymond Baby Curcio. This hit happened in response to Curcio and informer Vinnie Teresa burglarizing the home of his brother Joseph. Curcio was found in his car shot three times in the head. Now, to me, this is quite shocking that Teresa himself wasn't also murdered. Uh, and if Teresa was truly as close to Patriarcha as he claimed, this would have been quite the backstab and no doubt would have resulted in swift retribution. So my guess is either Patriarcha didn't know or Teresa potentially fabricated some of the circumstances. While Patriarcha was being arrested at his home, a doctor accompanying his lawyers detected an erratic heartbeat and he was subsequently hospitalized. Patriarcha would plead not guilty literally from his hospital room and in a twist of events, police would actually lose the bullets used in the slaying, which were to be used as key evidence in the trial. That's pretty convenient. Over the final few years of his life, Patriarcha would be in and out of the hospital due to declining health. As a result, he would undergo several surgeries and his trial would be delayed several times as he was deemed too ill to stand trial. The man who allegedly supplied the murder weapon in this case, Rudolf E. Schiara, was sentenced to life in prison in August of 1981. So the judge in this case was not messing around. Had Patriarcha actually stood trial for it, he may have found a way to wiggle out, but it's clear that they were out for blood, so the tactic he employed was to delay, delay, delay. And unfortunately for the family, Patriarcha's frailty was cause for concern as early as 1981. Law enforcement feared that there would eventually be a major battle for control over the family after Patriarcha was removed or died, something that eventually did come to pass. Finally, in 1981, while in the hospital for health problems yet again, Patriarcha would be arrested for another murder, the 1968 murder of Robert Bobby Candos, whom he believed was an informant who was poised to testify against the family and Patriarcha himself. Candos was reported missing on July 30th, 1968, one week before he was to stand trial in Providence for an $11,000 bank robbery. His skeleton was found in North Attleboro 22 months later, and it was discovered that he'd been shot three times in the head. The trigger man, Nicholas Palmigiano, testified that he killed Candos with a 45 caliber handgun on orders from Patriarcha. He said Patriarcha suspected Candos was going bad. He would also implicate Patriarcha in the Corcho 1965 slaying. This would end up being the final legal charge added to Ray Patriarcha's mob career. However, before the old man would make it to trial for either of those murders, fate would have other plans. On July 11, 1984, at 11.30 a.m., a fire department was called to Patriarcha's residence on Douglas Avenue in Providence, where they found him in full cardiac arrest. He was rushed to the Rhode Island Hospital, but despite intense efforts to save him, Patriarcha was pronounced dead at 1 p.m. Raymond Laredo Salvatore Patriarcha is buried in Gate of Heaven Cemetery, East Providence, Rhode Island. He is buried in a mausoleum along with his first wife, Helen, as well as his parents, Alitario and Mary. His second wife, Rita, is buried just to the right side of the mausoleum. Even despite his ill health, in later years, Patriarcha was still very ruthless, deadly, and in full control over the family almost right up until the end. Despite garnering a fair amount of legal notoriety during the last half of his life, Patriarcha insisted that he was simply a legitimate businessman who operated the National Cigarette Service of Vending Machine Business in the Federal Hills section of Providence. He is quoted as saying the following in an interview from September 1981 following an indictment by a federal grand jury in Miami on charges of labor racketeering. I was a bootlegger, I was a gambler, but since I got out of prison, I've done nothing wrong. Over his career, Patriarcha was arrested more than 30 times on charges ranging from bootlegging to conspiracy to murder and served several prison sentences, with the last being a six-year bit at the federal penitentiary in Atlanta for conspiracy to murder. He ruled his family with an iron fist for over 30 years. 
law enforcement officials contend that Patriarcha controlled a massive web of illicit activities that spread across New England, and in reality, his era of the New England mob can probably be called the Golden Age, as the mob in Boston and Providence really have never been able to reach the pinnacle of power that they had under Patriarcha after his death. In the aftermath of his passing, the Patriarcha family descended into a years-long bloody civil war for control over the family, which pitted his relatively ineffective son, Ray Patriarcha Jr., against a renegade faction led by the joker-looking mobster J.R. Russo. It was truly mob nepotism at his finest and caused a major fracture within the family. But that's a story for another day. Okay, so that is it for this episode, part two of the Patriarcha biography. And it was certainly, between the first part and the second part, a massive, massive episode and a massive undertaking in terms of the time to research and pull together all of the details in the story. Uh, before you go, please don't forget to subscribe so that you can continue to enjoy my content as it's released. And if you have any thoughts, please leave them in the comments on YouTube or write us a review on Apple if you've enjoyed the podcast. Lastly, feel free to check out our website at www.membersonlypodcast.com. Until next time, grazie. Thank you for listening to the Members Only Podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, please hit like and subscribe to help the channel grow. You can also listen anywhere you get your podcasts. Until next time, don't forget to keep your mouth shut.